What's at the core of this study is, is life and death and uh, evolutions and cycles. Today on Arts and Letters, we'll be talking with novelist and fish writer Mark Spitzer, whose book, Beautifully Grotesque Fish of the American West, combines science, folklore, history, ecology, and imagery, stitching those aspects together with experiences that come from pursuing underwater underdogs. Yeah, I'm always looking for the underdogs, for the, the marginalized creatures, the you know, the icons of weirdness, the, the fish that are overlooked. And along the way, we'll hear from biologist Casey Cox. You know, they're this fish that doesn't really look like a fish that goes on this really long journey. So let's sit down and trade old-fashioned fish tales. On Doc. An aquatic phantom in our own backyard. The elusive American eel. Up next on Arts and Letters. Since ocean currents and temperatures are driven by jet streams, and since jet streams affect the Gulf Stream, and since the Gulf Stream is now in flux due to excessive greenhouse gases, the highly delicate migration patterns of American eels are at risk of being irreversibly altered. From the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, I'm Jay Bradley Minnick, and welcome to Arts and Letters, a program providing opportunities for the celebration of the arts and humanities. Today we'll be talking with writer Mark Spitzer about American eels. As anyone can see on YouTube, there are plenty of eel cams to be accessed online. You can see American eels in various stages slithering through ladders, and you can see hundreds packing the streams while ballet music suggests some sort of semi-sexual primeval dance. Like millions, I've spent most of my life amidst these fish, but have never caught one, or glimpsed one, or even heard of anyone catching one. It's as though they're figments of our imagination, or aquatic phantoms appearing whenever they please. And along the way, we'll hear from biologist Casey Cox. And humans and eels have been kind of intertwined for a, you know, a long time. But what I really find fascinating about them is the, the life cycle and the migration. You know, they're this fish that doesn't really look like a fish that goes on this really long journey. And I think as humans, we're all kind of intrigued by the concept of a big journey. American eels are usually associated with the Atlantic coast and the river systems that enter the continent east of the Mississippi. Their distribution extends from the coastal streams of Greenland to the northern shores of South America. But they also occur in the west, swimming in through the Gulf of Mexico. They're in every state along the Mississippi River, plus Texas and South Dakota. They used to exist in New Mexico. They've been recorded in Arizona. They were introduced in Utah and California, and they escaped from a facility in Colorado. They're also in Nebraska due to a railroad bridge collapsing in 1873, spilling a load of eels into the Elkhorn River. Give me your wretched, your maligned, your demonized. This has always been my motto. Writer Mark Spitzer, biologist Casey Cox, a special appearance from Scotty Lewis, and the elusive American Eel on Arts and Letters. Mark Spitzer, welcome to Arts and Letters. Thanks, Brad. Good to be here. So I'm just going to ask you, Mark, why the title, Beautifully Grotesque Fish of the American West? Uh, the publisher actually picked Beautifully Grotesque, which I was sort of surprised at. I actually came up with the word fugly. That's what I proposed. <laughs> that really didn't fly with an academic press. <laughs> Beautifully fugly fish. But yeah, it was, it was appropriate, though, that they came up with their polar opposites, uh, beautiful and grotesque, you know. And um, I'd made a study of the grotesque for years, you know. When I, I was, when I was a kid, I was always trying to catch the ugliest fish I could and ugliest creatures I could. Then when I was in college as an undergrad, I went to Europe doing research on grotesque icons in medieval and Renaissance art. So I've really got a background in looking at the idea of the grotesque. And uh, it was just serendipitous that the publisher came up with that, that title. Nature of the American Eel, an aquatic phantom in our own backyard. When I showed up in the parking lot, 
Casey Cox was out by the dumpsters, looking a lot less gnome-like than when we sampled alligator gar a year earlier. I'd seen this transition to the clean-cut look before with a few of our biology grad students at the University of Central Arkansas, especially when they're looking for jobs, like the internship Casey had recently scored. It was the perfect position for him, since he was studying American eels, and the local U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service office was responding to a push to list this creature as an endangered species. There's the idea that this species is threatened. Yeah. Seriously threatened. Right. You said it's getting better. Are they as threatened as they were? They're very similar to the European eels. And that fish, 99% of its population has been wiped out. 99% of its range has been wiped out. Wow. So it's not that drastic with these eels. I think that their range has dropped 75%, the American eels. And, you know, Casey was involved in this study collecting data to see if they needed to be listed as endangered species or not. Let's hear from biologist Casey Cox. So when we started the study, we really, in a lot of ways, were starting from scratch. There had been records of eel catches, eel collections in certain parts of the state, but in a lot of ways, we really didn't know where to go, didn't know what to do. Um, we had a lot of ideas that we were going to try out, but we were kind of in the very beginning, and one idea that Jenny and Reed Adams and myself drew up was this survey. And the survey was really just intended to collect information about where people had caught eels, if they'd ever caught them in large numbers, you know, the, the size of the eels they were catching, were they catching a lot of small eels, which could be possibly indicative of an upstream migration, uh, did they ever catch larger eels that were, you know, maybe a different color and had large eyes that were indicative of the mature eels that were undergoing a, a downstream migration out to spawn. Really just, you know, where were they being caught? How were they being caught? What kinds of gear? What kinds of bait? What were some attributes of the eels that were collected? And in a lot of ways, it was really geared towards commercial fishermen who uh, spent most of the year running gear and catching fish and so it was it was kind of targeted at these guys however we ended up giving the survey to a lot of different people a blonde good-natured navy vet in his late 20s casey was catching eels all over the state he was collecting data for his thesis and working on an eel ladder which is what these serpentine squigglers need to get beyond the dams that have been blocking migrations throughout their range Help us understand the notion of the eel ladder. It's yeah. a little hard to picture for yeah. me. Okay, basically an eel ladder is a tube, and it's got some water going through it to simulate flow. And there's all sorts of different models for the eel ladder, but you, what you can do is you can take a tube, you can run it from the top of a dam to the bottom of a dam, and so there's all, all these uh, eels waiting at the bottom to finish their migration. They can go up the tube and get over the dam. And yeah. so the idea is to help them through the dam. Right. American eels are usually associated with the Atlantic coast and the river systems that enter the continent east of the Mississippi. Sometimes traveling up to 10,000 miles, they have the greatest known range of any fish in North America. And yep, they're actual fish with tiny, slimy scales. They're born in the Sargasso Sea, somewhere between the Bahamas and Bermuda, and being catadramas, they eventually head into fresh water where they live for three to as many as 40 years until they're sexually mature. That's when they head en masse back to their unknown spawning grounds to get it on and die. I think, for me, what's so fascinating about them is at this point still how much we don't know. There are this fish that spawns out in the Atlantic Ocean near Bermuda in an area called the Sargasso Sea, which, by the way, we know other than that almost nothing about. And then they, after that, drift. The larvae drift on ocean currents for long periods of time over, you know, thousands of miles to uh, the 
coastal parts of North America. And some at that point will embark on this really long distance upstream migration. And it's just a fascinating thing. They have a lot of obstacles thrown in their way that they seem to manage to, to find ways around and they just manage to persist. And they might live for decades in fresh water before they reach the size where they can mature and swim back out to sea and complete the spawning process. Tell us just a little <clears throat> bit about, for those who don't know, and you talked a little earlier about this Saragasso Sea, because you say that the fish will continue its slippery legacy as long as there's a Saragasso Sea. We know where the Sargasso Sea is. We don't know where the spawning grounds are, but the Sargasso Sea, like all oceans and seas in the world, is being affected by acidity right now. The pH level of, of the oceans, it's 8.1. 7.8 is, is where the things begin to tip. So the acidity of, is going up, and this is really affecting fisheries worldwide. Howdy, I greeted Casey. We shook hands and he showed me a tub filled with nine American eels between eight and 12 inches long. Right above the waterline, there was a six foot tube of PVC pipe set at a 45 degree angle, heading up to a 55 gallon barrel. Casey was pumping water up to it. The water was flowing down and there was a length of substrate going through the tube consisting of wire mesh and nylon netting material. Basically, this was an eel ladder. An eel came up to the surface with its elongated spade-shaped head. It peeked into the opening, squirmed a few inches in, then backed out. They're thinking about it, Casey said, but there's probably too much light right now. It was an early afternoon in May, and being nocturnal, eels are used to hunkering down during the day, hiding under rocks and logs. They just do this throughout a third of the country, and hardly anyone ever encounters one, which is something I find staggering. Like millions, I've spent most of my life amidst these fish, but have never caught one, or glimpsed one, or even heard of anyone catching one. It's as though they're figments of our imagination, or aquatic phantoms appearing whenever they please. Jay Bradley Minnick, and you're listening to Hearts and Letters. We'll be back in a moment. Let's return to our conversation with fish writer Mark Spitzer about the elusive American eel. I've never seen an eel, you know, <laughs> but um, a lot of people have never seen eels. And you mm -hmm. said you were kind of surprised as a fisherman, you'd mm -hmm. never really caught one yeah. before. They're nocturnal creatures. And they're like phantoms. They're very hard to, to kind of pen down, aren't they? Exactly. They're all over the country. They're over probably half the country, and nobody ever sees them. Nobody ever. But, you know, they hide out, and then I think they're mostly caught during their migrations in May, usually. But that's the main thing about eels. They've been mystifying humans for centuries, thanks in part to philosophers like Aristotle positing a bunch of bunk. He claimed they arose from the entrails of the sea. Then came Pliny, who wrote that they rubbed up against rocks and the goo that came off turned into juveniles. Eventually, a medical student named Sigmund Freud took a more scientific look. 
He spent weeks dissecting the American eel's European cousin in hopes of writing the seminal study of their testicles. Unable to find these, he moved on to psychology. Go figure. Would you tell us a little bit about the mythology of the eel? I mean, when you have everybody from um, Aristotle to uh, Sigmund Freud, is it because it's so elusive? There's the elusiveness. There's a, a wiggly, squiggly factor that weirds people out, which is why, you know, we, you, they're depicted as sea serpents so much. There's something about the genesis of them, and there's something genetic about them. They look like spermazoas. So there's something really seminal in our consciousness about, about eels. So uh, when we saw the eel that we ultimately caught, I remember it being quite an event. Another eel came undulating up, and I commented that it must be a she to be so far upstream since the males stay close to salt and brackish water. I remember a lot of an excitement about it. Casey agreed and mentioned that sexual differentiation occurs at between 30 or 40 centimeters. Before that, they're all intersexual, meaning they can go either way. According to a USFWS report from 2007, gender is most likely influenced by environmental factors, including eel densities. When densities increase, so do males. When densities decline, so do females. The more lakes there are in an area, the more females there are as well, which tend to grow larger than the males, sometimes up to four feet long. Ultimately, the genders join up when they're ready to breed, and the whole Ely exodus heads out to sea. their life cycle like? So they started as yellow eels. That's their larval state. They develop into elvers, and they're transparent. And then they become silver eels, and this is probably more their adolescent state. And, and they become full-grown. They'll be two, two and a half to four feet long. The females are much larger than the males, as is the case with a lot of fish. An eel entered the tube, and we cheered as it wiggled up but then it stopped halfway. Another one entered, then another. Something was driving them to follow the flow. Or maybe they just wanted to get out of the light. Whatever the case, they remained in there and refused to venture all the way up. What we found was if you're looking for something and working real hard trying to catch them and then you finally see one, it is kind of exciting. Casey said I could take one. And not too long after that, I went home with a bucket. Digging through my mind for the most ludicrous non-Ely name I could think of, I decided on Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant was a yellow eel, and she definitely had a champagne sheen. Mostly, though, she was olivine gray with a bright white belly. I dropped my new pet into an aquarium set up in my office. The observation had begun. You take a more biological look. Your <laughs> first attempt is to kind of observe fire hydrant in the tank, but she's having none of it. Fire hydrant, however, had disappeared the morning after I brought her home, getting away through a gap the size of three dimes stacked on top of each other. When I pulled back the desk, I could see water splattered against the wall and then her tail beside the baseboard. I grabbed her and she was still alive, so I put her back into the aquarium, figuring eels must have lung-like organs, a trait Casey later confirmed was a necessary accessory for traveling from mud hole to mud hole when streams go dry. This was a job for duct tape, so I sealed the gap then threw in a minnow. I also tossed in a partial worm, but the next day, fire hydrant was gone again, I'd read James Prozek's Eels, an exploration from New Zealand to the Sargasso of the world's most mysterious fish, that he tried to keep eels, but they were masters of escape, 
that had even committed suicide by banging their heads against the glass. I looked all over the room and even in some adjacent rooms, but couldn't find fire hydrant anywhere. Still, I figured I'd keep the aquarium going since I intended to catch an eel myself. A couple of times working at that desk, I thought I heard the gravel shift, but I told myself I was tripping out. I had sifted through that gravel earlier and hadn't found any traces of the eel, but two days later, or nights rather, there she was, hanging out in the alligator grass. Unfortunately, Fire Hydrant only came out at night and wasn't letting me see her much. Some pet she turned out to be. What I was trying to observe was a creature that defied observation. No wonder Pliny and Aristotle got it wrong. Perhaps that's what intrigued Freud. The way they swim together in spermy formation, eventually develop phallus heads, then experience the ultimate ecstasy, recreating themselves through death. You said recreating themselves through death. They're a lot like salmon, you know, they, they spawn and they die. Yep, they spawn and die. And do they go back to their original spawning grounds or they try to, right? Yeah, they, they go to their original spawning grounds in the Sargasso Sea. That's also where the European eels go to spawn. We're getting closer and closer to finding the spot, though. There's a lot of vegetation in this part of the ocean, which probably makes it hard to find them. There's probably a lot of animals and a lot of different fish living in the Sargasso Sea, but it's a vast area. Arkansas, yellow eels head upstream in gregarious gangs in mid-May. We were coming off a time of high activity, but hoping a few stragglers were still trying to get over the dam. I really like how you kind of discuss dams. Mm -hmm. And for all the good dams do, they create a lot of problems too, don't they? Yeah, double-edged sword. You know, I mean, they, they create power, they give us water, irrigation, crops, agriculture. But for the fish, they block migrations. They cause sedimentation. Especially in the American West, everything has been re-engineered. The species aren't the same as they used to be 200 years ago. Dams mess with water temperature, the flow. Fish have to adapt to systems that they didn't evolve their bodies for. Dams can also cause low oxygen levels, and their construction can seriously diminish habitat availability. Dams also cause turbidity and suspended sediments that mess with eels during all their freshwater life stages. Now, they still do have numerous challenges. You know, the dams still really are a challenge, and the kind of dam makes a big difference. So, they definitely do have some ability to get either over dams or maybe through or around dams. But now 
I think in the Washita River system, they have a lot of real challenges as far as the, the big reservoir dams. I don't think they're getting up and over those. Other threats include overfishing, excessive harvesting of juveniles and pathogens. But it's not just eels that could suffer from the changing climatic equations. Since they're directly connected to so many species in the food chain, a shift in their balance could catastrophically impact ecosystems worldwide. That's what Casey and I were talking about, sitting on the shore of the Caddo, waiting for eels to enter the ladder. We were also talking about the world record, 9.25 pounds, and the oldest one ever reported, 88 years old, and the fact that eels grow larger in salt water and in the south. So I took Mark to a place where I thought was just a sure thing we would find some, and we were really getting skunked. We weren't, we weren't seeing anything. We were trying everything I knew to do, and it just didn't seem to be really productive. By the way, we were electrofishing, so we are using electricity in the water to stun the fish, but also if you, if you do it right, it will attract the fish to the electricity. What y'all fishing for? A woman's voice asked, hardly audible above the rumble of her pickup truck, which sounded like a pack of Harleys. Eels, Casey answered, sauntering over to say hello. She was idling in the parking lot with her two teenage daughters beside her in the cab. They were texting away and seemed annoyed at their mother for talking to random strangers. Eels, she replied. I hate those things. Caught one last week, five feet long, thick around as my arm. What y'all want with those disgusting things? Had sail with the boys. He was looking for a life at sea. He told his ma and his pa and his sister, You're gonna be so proud of me. I'm gonna catch me a pile of fish, get rich and settle down. I'll buy land and a house on a hill, looking out over my town. But the waves were big and the nights were long. It had nasty little beady eyes, the woman continued. How y'all fishing for him? Casey explained the eel ladder and the zapper, but she just shook her head, acting as though we didn't know nothing. You gotta use chicken livers, she said, then paused for a second. Y'all ain't fishing for catfish, are ya? Nope, Casey said. We're not interested in those right now. You sure y'all ain't fishing for catfish? She shot back, giving him a sideways glance. No, no, Casey laughed. We just want eels. Okay, she nodded, then propped her elbow out the window. Y'all see that spot over there down by the boat launch? That's the honey hole. We catch a lot of cats in that spot. I once got one that was 38 pounds. I clean them myself. Anyways, last week we were trying to catch some cats, but all we kept catching was them damn eels. They just love chicken livers. At this point, Casey realized she was a valuable source of information. Would you be willing to fill out a survey, he asked. She looked at him with narrowed eyes. Casey came back with a survey designed for a commercial fisherman and told her that it would really help him with his research. She accepted it like a pamphlet from a Jehovah's Witness, then hit the gas and drove away. You stumble upon people once in a while who've, who know about eels, have caught eels. Back in the day, people used to catch eels more than they do now. People had specialized eel traps and, you know, there's, there's a culture of eel fishing on the East Coast and the Hudson River and New York and stuff. Do you know if she ever sent in the survey? Don't know. Maybe, <laughs> maybe Casey can tell us. Yeah. As I recall, she did fill out the survey. Um, I remember going to talk to her and she was pretty, pretty fired up to talk about eels and how she caught several of them in her life and um, it got quite a response out of her, which I found some people did have quite a reaction to the fish. You know, they're kind of kind of a snake-like thing and it tended to be a little polarizing to people sometimes and she was one of them. But yeah, as I recall, she did fill out the survey and gave us some information. Nobody knows. My guess is somewhere dark and deep at the bottom of the sea. 
This is Arts and Letters. We're listening to fish writer Mark Spitzer talk about the elusive American eel from his book, Beautifully Grotesque Fish of the American West. We'll be back in a moment. Let's return to our conversation with fish writer Mark Spitzer about the elusive American eel. I bought a $10 trot line at Walmart along with a pack of 1-0 swivel hooks and sat down to rig it up. The hooks had barbs and were small enough for a foot-long eel to get its mouth around, but I also added a few smaller hooks meant for pint-sized sunfish. Those hooks were so dinky that I couldn't thread the strings through them so instead I used 50-pound braided line. It was a few days after the Caddo River, and the plan was to run the trot line beneath Remmel Dam on the Washita River, where Casey had caught 100 eels two weeks before. Those eels were bigger than the Caddo eels, some of them longer than three feet. I got off at the Malvern exit and met my assistant, Scotty Lewis, who works with me on the Toadsuck Review. A grad student in creative writing, and an avid fisherman, he was staying with his mother in Hot Springs, so only had to drive a few miles. We found a spot downstream from the dam with tons of toaster to microwave-sized boulders in knee-deep water. Scotty followed me upstream as I unwound the trot line, baiting it with small chunks of nightcrawlers. The line was 125 feet long and had 25 hooks dangling from it, plus a pop bottle float on each end. I'd had a lot of luck with my trot line, which is strung across a spot where a creek used to be. Catfish still travel there, as do other fish. Since I'd been running that line, I'd caught a 38-pound flathead and another that must have weighed 60. I'd also caught crappie the size of flattened footballs, plus drum, gar, bass, bowfin, and the occasional unfortunate water bird. Anyhow, since I'd had some practice, I felt pretty confident that I could get an eel with my custom-made small-game trot line. If they were in there, that is. So as the sun went down, we settled into our lawn chairs and threw out some lines. A few minutes later, we couldn't see our bobbers in the dark, but that didn't matter. What mattered was the trot line. And our premixed gin and tonics. An hour later, the trot line floats were bopping up and down, so Scotty and I decided to check them. Now that it was darker out, we couldn't see the rocks below the surface. So we stumbled around like drunken clowns, removing sunfish from every other hook. If there wasn't a bluegill or rock bass on that line, the hook was usually bare. These dang brim are taking all our bait, I complained to Scotty, then slipped off a rock, went flailing around, and ended up falling into the river. Scotty laughed. <laughs> we rebaited the line and sloshed back to shore, where we made a small fire so I could dry out. After an hour of standing in the smoke, we figured we'd give it a final try. The trot line floats were going nuts, as they had earlier, meaning the sunfish had been raiding the buffet again. Scotty led, taking off any bait that remained and throwing back the small sunnies. I followed, winding up the line and securing the hooks. As we neared the end, I gave up entirely. It's very Spitzer-esque, mm. but at the same time, it has this hyper textual language and as you said people exaggerate so with fish right. language yeah. i'm sure it's not exaggerated but in a sense the language exaggerates or it heightens it Holy crap, it's an eel. i splashed over and there it was writhing and squirming and snapping at me with its razor sharp turtle-like beak it got me once and drew blood but i managed to unclip the drop line and carry it back Meanwhile, the monster was thrashing like a spastic demon and flashing with a golden glint, tangling itself even more. It was climbing the double line and weaving in and out of it and lunging for more finger meat. Then it began nodding itself and gnashing on the metal clip and hissing like a crazed viper. I dropped it in my bucket and headed back to assist Scotty. We got that trot line out of there and went back to the eel, which was now way more knotted up. That 50-pound test was wrapped around it multiple times, practically slicing into it. We had to get a knife and perform some highly surgical cuts 
which was not an easy procedure. The line was actually strangling that heel, and it just kept twisting the tourniquet. I was struggling to keep my grip on it. Scotty was trying not to get chomped, and it was roaring at us like a rabid dragon. In the depths of its hellacious throat, I could see one of the smaller hooks. It took 15 minutes to remove the line, and I was worried about the bruises it left, now wringing its neck with stripes. Then, weaseling the hook out through its gills, we beheld the behemoth sparkling with slime. Since this was the first eel I'd caught, it meant a lot more to me than Fire Hydrant had. This Leviathan was also way more freakish than the one Casey had shocked on the Caddo, no doubt due to the burbling blood spurting from its gaping maw, pumping up its creepy factor. But the thing was, it was only nine inches long. Only nine inches long. And there you are in the picture holding it, looking a little stunned. And, <laughs> and it's it's kind of pretty small in your hand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, very, um, very Herman Melville here with the, the catching of this. You really invoked the Leviathan <laughs> there with your exaggerated language a little. I'm sure it seemed like that at the time, though. This thing was oh, yeah. only nine inches long, but it was it was strangling itself to death, and it was also just going crazy, right? It was a mini monster, yeah. <laughs> and you named this one what? And this was Malvern. Poor Malvern does not have a a good morning. No. In the morning, as usual, Fire Hydrant was nowhere to be seen. Malvern, on the other hand, that's what I named her, was lying on her side in the tank, gasping as though she was suffering from organ failure, and she probably was. Getting all wound up like that had done enough damage to do her in. I'd thrown Malvern in with Fire Hydrant since they were both the same size and maybe even from the same spawn. Since a female eel can produce 3 to 40 million eggs, and since the Caddo is a tributary of the Washita, the possibility that they could be sisters wasn't that ridiculous. Anyway, since it was apparent that Malvern wasn't going to make it, I tossed her into Lake Conway, where the turtles were on the prowl. I took her picture, left her there, and an hour later, she was gone. Weaver of webs, set by prey, in the need of truth, everything you say. Another casualty for my list, wasted because I decided to play God, or biologist, or fish writer, who believes he has to capture a creature in order to know it better. Consequences be damned. Help us with that notion. I mean, those of us who maybe don't fish, do fish, there is this notion of playing God. But you're so very careful in almost every one of these pieces that you let them go, you take a picture with them, right. you're very, very considerate of them. Was this that you felt you weren't? What is that paragraph about? Because that yeah. that struck me. Well, yeah, I mean, you do play God when you go fishing because you take fish's lives in your hands. You know, you you either keep them or you let them go. And sometimes they swallow a hook, they get injured. You oftentimes let them go with injuries. Sometimes you use live bait to use one fish to catch another fish. You know, I've, I've done a lot of thinking about this and, you know... Um, I don't always feel good about hurting fish. For me to do my research, fish end up hurt. I mean, this mm -hmm. is just what happens. And so a lot of it is, one of the reasons I go fishing is just for my own ecstasy, to catch a fish. It's it's great to have a catch a fish, you know? Mm -hmm. But if you're conscientious, you wonder what, what the price is. We 
The next day I drove Fire Hydrant to the Arkansas River and let her go. She was a crummy pet anyhow, very unsocial and never around. Observing her was like trying to keep a phantom locked up. But I hesitate to employ this experience as a metaphor because that's too obvious. Melvin was an isolated case. Still, when something like this happens, it's in our nature to try to place it into perspective. It's also in our nature to moralize, which is what I'm trying to avoid right now. So let's look at the facts instead. In 2004, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service received a petition to protect the American eel under the Endangered Species Act. After three years of research and debate, scientists decided there wasn't enough evidence to prove that extinction was an imminent threat. This assessment, however, was challenged in 2011 when the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service responded to another petition in light of the fact that the 2007 status review hadn't thoroughly assessed population structure, the impact of the parasitic nematode Anguilla cola crassus, that it declined long-term glass eel recruitment numbers and the effects of global warming also were not in the study. So essentially, we're still hashing out the details of the 2007 ruling. And since hashing out details requires data, that's where Casey and others come in. So they are here, and they are here in kind of large numbers in some areas, but they, they still do have the challenges of the river fragmentation. And there are some real opportunities, I think, for eel passage projects at those locations. But it is important to remember that it's not just getting them upstream over obstacles, it's also getting them safely back downstream too. And I know the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission is working to tag some of these larger mature eels and track them as they migrate back out to the ocean. And I know right now that's a, a project in conjunction with the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. And they've, they've tracked them all the way down the Washita River well into Louisiana. So we do know they're successfully, at least partially successfully, getting out of Arkansas and back down towards the Gulf of Mexico. Now, with all that said, I don't think we'll ever see, you know, people catch large numbers of eels. I don't think we'll ever see any kind of commercial fishery form or any of these eel weirs or eel dams like they have up in the Northeast. Understandably, we have a lot more historical data on American eels from the East than from the West. We've been watching eels longer and more closely in the East, where they're more established as part of the fishery culture. Hence, it's the research from the East, I suspect, that will determine the overall status of the American eel. I also suspect that because this fish's disposition has already been evaluated in excruciating detail, it's doubtful that new federal studies will be funded unless it's absolutely essential. This attitude echoes our tendency in human nature not to treat a wound until it's infected, when prevention would have been the more pragmatic choice in the first place. Still, that's easy to say, sitting in my shed, typing on my laptop, staring out at a world in the way I perceive it. I know I'm idealistic, I know eels are gradually going down, and I know it's ridiculous to claim we should have thought more about the effects of climate change before allowing the petrochemical industries to confuse scientific fact with strategic disinformation and denial. Using the steps, ignoring the cries. Just stones along the path. Nope, it's too late for prevention. And it's also too late for the European eel, which has experienced a 99% population loss due to industry, development, pollution, dams, the whole enchilada. An enchilada we are eating now. The range of the American eel is down to 75% of what it used to be in the nation's watershed. But if there's one saving grace for the American eel, it's that this species is able to endure a wide range of environmental conditions. Sunshine, 
this breezy bright And I got you by my side Everything is fine According to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, eels have the broadest diversity of habitats of any fish species in the world. This means they're capable of surviving here if eliminated there, since they're all one population, spawning in the same spot. Additionally, eels are able to withstand all sorts of temperatures and salinity levels, which accounts for how they survive several ice ages. I would say, at the end of the study, when we finally wrapped it up in 2014, I was more optimistic about eels than when we started, because we, you know, set out to catch something that was pretty rare, and I think at the end had somewhere around 300 eels that we had caught, and most of those were on a couple, maybe three different events. So I think I attribute a lot of that to one, being really lucky, and two, kind of figuring out the migration patterns and where and when to go and that sort of thing. And once we figured that out, we really started being productive. But overall, I think they're hardy and they're survivors, and I think they will, uh, I think they will persist. My highly biased conclusion, then, is that this baffling and bizarre fish will continue its slippery legacy as long as there's a Sargasso Sea. And even if this species crashes, eels will persevere in our imaginations, assuming we can outlast them, as they've done for millennia. Realistically, though, imaginary fish are a poor substitute for the real thing. shame though when you think when you said this fish has survived two ice ages and, yeah. and it, it may not make it through this metaphorical one. I'm preferring to, to look at it positively though now. I think you know we still have 75% of its range. It's still there. I think you know the Fish and Wildlife Service has claimed that it doesn't need to be protected federally at the endangered species level. Um, that's good. Sometimes when a fish gets that protection, it's too late. And sometimes the protection helps bring it back. Sometimes it doesn't. So I'm optimistic, actually, about the eel. I think that the eel is being very versatile with its problems. It's rolling with its problems. Uh, and we can use that as a model for ourselves. Broadcast from the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, you've been listening to Arts and Letters. Thanks for joining us. To check out past episodes, go to artsandlettersradio.org. Leave us a comment there and let us know what you've thought about the program. Thank you to songwriter Silas Height for the soundscapes. Thank you to Project Parallel for the song Phantasma Del Mar. 
Thank you to the Satin Cowboy and the Seven Deadly Sins for the song La Find You. Set sail with the boys. He was looking for a life at sea. He told his mom and his pa and his sister, You're gonna be so proud of me. I'm gonna catch me a pile of Thank you to composer, singer, and songwriter, Amy Josevanna, for the amazing soundscapes and songs. Thank you to biologist Casey Cox and poet and angler Scotty Lewis for the interviews. Thank you to Adam Simon of Simon Sound for helping to mix and for mastering the program. Thank you to Sticky's Rock and Roll Chicken Shack for keeping music alive and well in Arkansas. Generous funding for Arts and Letters was provided by the Arkansas Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thank you to fish writer Mark Spitzer for so eloquently shining a light on the elusive eel, a phantom in our own backyards. For Arts and Letters, I'm Jay Bradley Minnick. Let's heed these words from Aristotle. Eels are born from the earth's guts and grow spontaneously in mud. Every time you show me who you are, I didn't want to believe. And when I look back so far, now it's all I can see.